If you're working with these companies that are either the number two or number three, but not the top one, A, they can benefit more from the leverage that you give them. And two, you can get better economics in your favor. Hey, welcome to Trapital. I'm your host, Dan Runcie. This is your place to gain insights on the business that shapes music, media, and culture. We dive deep into the companies and moguls who start the trends that shape the rest of the business world. The story of Yeezy is a Hollywood screenplay waiting to be told, but not like the movie Air. This isn't going to be Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and Viola Davis fist bumping and slapping hands at the end because of all they accomplish. This is more like the Wolf of Wall Street, the fantastic rise, the epic fall, and a movie that just leaves you scratching your head like, wow, how did this person that had it all get to this point? And that's what we're here to talk about today. The story of Yeezy's rise is fascinating, especially when you think about who Kanye West is, his visions in fashion, everything tying back to him working at The Gap as a teenager to him trying to get in the record business and how so much of that translated itself to his endeavors and dreams in the fashion world. But we also talk about the struggles as well, moving from company to company and how that narrative of always feeling underestimated and then feeling like people aren't going to stop you and people can't tell you no and how that ends up leading to billions of dollars of lost value for you, your business partners and everyone else involved. And to break it all down, I'm joined by Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. He's friend of the pod. He's worked on a lot of the reporting over the years when he was at Forbes about the business of Yeezy and really elevating its value, bringing it to life. So we talk about that. We talk about his partnership with Gap, how it all went wrong, and so much more. If you enjoyed the episode we did on Adidas a couple months back, you'll really enjoy this one. So let's dive in to the rise and fall of Yeezy. All right. We are here today to talk about the rise and fall of Yeezy. I'm joined by friend of the pod, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, who had the inside scoop for a lot of that rise. And I got to be honest, man, as we were doing the preparation for this episode, I was just frustrated because everything was right there. This should have been purely a rise story. What he accomplished for a non-athlete, even more impressive than most athletes that try to get into this space, this should be a continued success story of how it expanded into other lines of merchandise and apparel. But no, we have to talk about the fall as well. And it's just a shame. He had it. He had it all right there. Kanye had it all right in front of him. And all he had to do was avoid hate speech. And um, he couldn't do that. So obviously there's a lot of factors at play here. Obviously mental health issues we're talking about. There's no excuse for hate speech. And, you know, Kanye vaporized a multi-billion dollar fortune because of it. So here we are. And, you know, and on top of that, I can't wear my freaking glow in the darks anymore. So that's the real tragedy right now. Not to make light of it, but I think a lot of people are in the position of having some 350s in their closet and not knowing what to do about it or selling them on Craigslist or what have you. So what a mess. I spent a fair bit of time with Kanye over the years, did this big Forbes cover story on him in 2019, sort of acknowledging the reality of that business, which people didn't really quite appreciate until basically that time. And he really did. He, he built a billion dollar brand, multi-billion dollar brand, bringing in revenues that were sort of creeping up toward Jordan and tossed it all away. So let's dive right in. It's probably good to start this story, not just with Yeezy itself, but with Kanye West, the person that was always interested in fashion and being able to see where this was going, because this is someone that we all know worked at The Gap in his teenage years. 
but this is also someone that had been designing Jordans and having the vision of not just doing the arts on the music side, but bringing the art to fashion. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to his earliest days, I mean, I remember when I interviewed him, he said he used to get in trouble because he would be sketching shoes in his notebooks instead of, you know, taking notes or whatever he's supposed to do in class. And he would sketch Jordan once and sort of try to make his own variants and designs. I'm sure he was also writing lyrics and, and things like that. But, you know, he had these dueling passions from the very beginning, for sure. And with that, he was able to always have a hand in doing multiple things at once, right? We saw this in music. He did the rap and the track. He did that there. We saw this in fashion where you saw it in sneakers. You saw it in apparel. All of these things in terms of how he carried himself, the Louis Vuitton Don with the double pop collars, all of the things that became that signature look. He clearly was leaning towards this path. And even in those early years of his college dropout days, he had had a lot of conversations with the Nikes, with the Adidas's, with the footwear companies of the world. Because as you and I've talked about in our past episodes, this was the time when a lot of rappers were starting to get their sneaker deals. Jay-Z, his big brother on Rockefeller, had the Reebok deal. G-Unit, the other biggest rapper at the time, had the Reebok deal. So this was very much what they were doing. But again, were they going to give a sneaker deal to this guy that was doing the creative thing? It's like, okay, you just had this one hit. Let's see how this album goes. And if anyone was capturing the alternative hip-hop corner of sneaker deals, it was Pharrell. It was Lupe Fiasco, who in many ways kind of came with Kanye in that stretch, but those were the people that had much earlier imprints, at least on a commercial scale for fashion. So he wasn't quite there. And there were other people that had that corner. Yeah, I mean, in the very early days, sort of the mid aughts, I think he he had this deal with a bathing ape, he did a shoe for them that had the little bear from the college dropout cover from all from that sort of trilogy appeared in, in uh, the registration college dropout and graduation, the bear was on there. And but these were right, these were kind of very limited edition drops, it was sort of like a little sideline and everybody was sort of more excited about Dot Carter sneaker or the the G unit sneaker you know that was kind of going on at the time there's a little after that I guess but still he was like the we were fresh off of the S. Dot Carter being the best-selling non-athlete shoe of all time and G-Unit sneakers being a big deal, which I think we talked about. Those were hideous shoes. You know, Kanye must have been looking at that like, what are these guys doing, you know? And sort of being frustrated that about what was being put out into the, the mainstream. But at the time, right? I mean, I know he was a solo artist, but was probably better known as a producer still. Are you really going to give a producer a shoe deal? I mean, I guess Pharrell had shoe deals, but I think understood as a solo artist in his own right at that point. But that was kind of the milieu in which Kanye started to put out feelers into the fashion industry and get involved in footwear. Right, because sure, a few years after those bathing ape sneakers, the deal with Nike does come to fruition. And at this point, yay, stadium yay, graduation, outselling Curtis on September 11, 2007. So this is clearly the mark where Kanye's like, I am the guy, I am here. Stronger is the biggest record in the country. I have my number one hit. So it's a very different conversation at this point. And this is also when the Nike conversation starts. He's able to start the deal with Nike. And it wasn't the most favorable deal at the time, which we'll get into. But it gave him the foundation to at least have some of these designs where a lot of them looked very similar to the high top sneakers, but he was able to put his own spin on it. And a lot of that spin carried through with the easy design that we saw. And a lot of people really weren't sure about what was happening with these sneakers or what was really going on. But all that changes in 2007. This is when the official partnership with Nike starts. But a lot of people don't really know about it at the time. It wasn't this big splashy deal. 
the economics of it weren't necessarily anything to brag about, which will become a continued frustration for Kanye as this deal continues to develop. But it actually wasn't until 2008 where he was a prototype of this shoe at the Grammys. That starts a little bit of buzz. People are like, okay, what's that? What do you have there? The internet blogs and people start talking about it. But then the big commercial release of the Nike Air Yeezy 1 happens in 2009. Yeah, and I think that was the moment that people were like, wait a minute, you know, Kanye is up to something here, something really interesting with footwear. He was able to create a high top. Like, it's so hard to make a high top that doesn't just feel like a lesser version of some Jordan, whether it's Jordan 1 or the the 5s or the 11s, something like that. You know, I think Jordan's been so dominant in high tops, everything just feels like a knockoff. But somehow Kanye was able to create something totally different feeling with the Yeezy 1s, and that started getting people really interested. You know, the other thing was that they were really hard to find. I mean, I remember, gosh, it was like my mother-in-law knew that I was a sneakerhead. And she's like, what do you want for your birthday? Like, get your pair of sneakers. And what's the one you're most interested in finding? I'm like, well, you know, I mean, the easy ones are pretty awesome. But I don't think you can find them. And I think this was before StockX. And she was very frustrated she couldn't find them. And easy ones, you can't find them. They were these kind of status symbol. It was really like almost a friends and family kind of thing. And you would see maybe like Jay or Puff or somebody like that wearing them courtside. And it was like, oh, you know, you've got the ones. I just remember them being really rare. And as Kanye went through with the Nike situation, it always felt like that. It was all kind of like a limited edition. It was hard to find, which was bad for him from a financial perspective, because I think in some ways his wings were clipped. But on the other hand, it created all this pent up demand for shoes designed by Kanye. And that would serve him really well in the future. So the interesting thing about the quantities being limited is that Kanye is likely very frustrated because he has this thing that is clearly extremely popular selling for thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars on reseller markets. He can't maximize the demand for those to make the money from them. But it's also this tough thing because Nike is clearly doing two things. One, it feels like they're kind of treating it a bit more like a vanity project where Yeezy doesn't collect any royalties from these payments and they wanted him to donate some of the proceeds to charity. Kanye didn't have a direct line to Mark Parker, who was the CEO at Nike at the time. And it was really tough to build a true business around it because they were more so looking at this as, okay, yeah, Kanye West wants to do this thing. We'll let him do his thing. But still on the other side, Kanye's like, no, I want to build the next Jordan brand and you're not letting me. And we started to see those frustrations continue, even though there were more successful Yeezys from Nike to come from this, we started to see that some of this frustration came through. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, Kanye told me that the whole thing began when he randomly sat next to Mark Parker on a flight. And I guess both of them were flying commercial, you know, so uh, you kind of speaks to how long ago that was, although maybe Kanye's back to flying commercial now. I don't know. He met Mark Parker and and that was the genesis of the partnership, but I guess it didn't have a direct line in the way that he would later have a direct line to the leadership of Adidas. But I, I do think that, you know, much in the way prestigious organizations often are able to get away with paying less for work from great practitioners, you know, great professionals, just because those professionals want to be associated with this great brand, you know, that's kind of what was going on with Nike. And Kanye was really establishing his bona fides um, and kind of making himself more valuable to these other brands. But he must have been sitting there and thinking about how, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about Adidas acquisition Reebok and how might have been partly to get a piece of Reebok sort of like urban je ne sais quoi, right? Like there there was a momentum that Reebok had both with the S.Carter sneakers, the Genius sneakers, 
um, some some of the Allen Iverson stuff in those markets that you know Adidas at the time didn't have or didn't think it had, which is kind of silly because when you go back to the beginning of hip hop, there's Adidas. Like, how is that not a heritage you can lean on if you're Adidas and kind of do something with? That's the state of affairs at the time, and and so there's Kanye kind of toiling away in relative obscurity, you know, for or not obscurity, but not being paid as much as he might be able to get paid. And I think that's kind of why ultimately, you know, that paved the way for him to be uh, making the move over to Adidas. The other interesting thing at the time is that this wasn't Kanye's only frustration in the fashion world or his only eagerness of trying to come up. So in 2009. He starts this clothing line called Pastel that gets shuttered after seven months. Early 2010s, he's trying to push good music, merchandise, and I never really saw that on a mainstream perspective, but I can guarantee that Kanye probably spent a lot of time and money trying to push that. This was also around the same time that Kanye and Virgil Abloh were at Fenty and they were interns. And it was kind of this thing where people were like, oh, look at Kanye trying to learn up the ropes and put himself in these situations. But this that's the thing. He was willing to put himself out there, but he also was like, okay, if I put myself out there and I'm putting out dope shit, I deserve to rise up the ranks and be treated like a meritocracy. But it just still didn't quite work out that way. Yeah. And in a way, I wonder if we sort of have Taylor Swift to thank for Kanye going all in on fashion and footwear, right? Because it was only after the VMAs in 2009, obviously Kanye comes up, interrupts Taylor, says Beyonce should have won, the whole thing, uh, which he shouldn't have done. We all know that. But the backlash was insane and racist. And people, you know, I, I think don't fully appreciate that, especially outside of hip hop heads. But but yeah, I mean, the backlash, you know, I mean, he was getting death threats. He was he, like, he shouldn't have gone up there. And also, uh, you know, I mean, he had the president of the United States calling him a, a jackass, like, over this thing. It, it really, it, it seemed like it was going to ruin his entire career for a hot minute there. <clears throat> and so, you know, he decided to basically take a sabbatical and go to Italy and, and do this internship at Fenty. And he and Virgil Abloh were over there around the same time. And he, he it was sort of like an exile. It was like uh, this sort of self-imposed, I mean, not self-imposed, but a reaction to other factors, you know, he decided to go and do this thing and, and kind of take himself off the market for a while. And, you know, I think people assume that that Virgil was sort of like his boss or something, but they were they were both interns. And, and the way Kanye described that he was sort of like Virgil's mentor, although I don't know, we can't really ask Virgil about that anymore. Unfortunately, rest in peace. But it seemed that Kanye at that point was sort of like farther along even in his career than Virgil was at the time. Of course, they both went on to do really great things. But, you know, I think Kanye comes back from this internship with like all this energy, all this creative energy. And I think I think the Red Octobers were like a big turning point for him, the Red October high tops. And that was sort of like uh, took him up to the next level on the shoe front. Those shoes were huge. It was a cult following in and of itself. So at this point, the Nike partnership, he's still having his frustrations, but these shoes were huge. They had some of the highest resale prices that I think we've still seen of any shoe. They truly are collector's items in that right. And this is where I think it really sunk in that no, Kanye is making his effort to make these shoes pieces of art and he wants them to be seen as such and treated as such. But still, plenty of frustrations because this is when Kanye also starts to become a bit more vocal about these challenges. He's going on different radio shows, whether it's Hot 97 or Sway's Universe, and he's starting to share his frustrations about the relationship with Nike. There's that infamous clip that 
we've all seen at this point of Kanye speaking with Sway on Sway's universe and he's yelling at Sway Swain, you don't have the answer, Sway. You've never done it at this level. Mark Parker, who's going to be the person to give me the money so that I can be the Medici family and Nike, Google, Warhol, and just naming all of these 20th century billionaires and moguls in that epic rant and then it has that line it ain't ralph though where he's talking about sway when sway's talking about his clothing brands at a, another level but this is him just purely sharing the frustration so you have that interview i also remember the interview with kanye and charlemagne the god this was on the breakfast club i think it was 2013 where charlemagne's like you make amazing music why do you need to do all this fashion stuff and kanye's really starting to dig into and explain why it's so important to him and this is where we start to see that yeah it's kind of one of those things where at this point there were odds on is kanye west going to build a billion dollar business off of fashion in general let alone footwear the odds probably would have been small but this guy saw the vision he had all of these failures not to mention the woman's wear line called kanye west that he had started in 2011 that didn't work out either so he's just getting told no 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 getting ridiculed by all of these other people but he still wanted to bring this to life well i think for kanye he's sitting there he's like this is what people were telling me about rapping they were like stick to producing you're a great producer why would you try to rap and obviously he proved them wrong and i think he just saw this all as a continuation of the same thing they tell you you can't do this you can't do that but you're kanye you can do it and i think all along you know obviously kanye had this tremendous sense of self you could say putting it mildly you know i mean i think kanye has always seen himself as walt disney or walt disney in the flesh Zach, Walt Disney in the flesh. <laughs> in the flesh, in the flesh. You can't dispute that he's a genius and that he was right about a lot of things and people were telling him no, they were wrong. He was right. He was a great rapper, a great shoe designer. I don't know if he's such a great clothes designer. He should really be designing furniture. But like, how about producing, rapping, footwear and being like an A-plus genius demigod at all? Is that like not enough? You know, maybe just go with that. Do the rap and the track, triple-double, no, like... You don't need to do like a quintuple double here. Be cool with being like this really well-rounded superstar. Like just be LeBron James. You don't need to also be Will Chamberlain at the same time. I don't know. It was never enough for Kanye. And, and I think that served him well, but it didn't anymore. Let's take a quick break for this week's chart metric stat of the episode. We've talked a lot about Kanye West's brand partnerships. And chart metric measures each artist's audience brand affinity. That's how much an artist's audience on Instagram overlaps with a particular brand. And as of February 7th, Louis Vuitton was number 10 on the Louis Vuitton Don's list. Adidas, the former home to Yeezy, was number 3. Nike, the original home to Yeezy, was number 2. And number 1 was Supreme. So if Yeezy ends up ever partnering with another company, maybe that might be his best bet. Let's go back to the episode. Before we get deep into the shame part, there's interesting thing that's happening around this point because around 2013, 2014, this is when the transition happens from Nike to Adidas. Nike actually claims that it had warned Adidas about how difficult it was working with Ye and Nike claims that Adidas, whether they heard those concerns or what they did with them, never necessarily, we don't necessarily know what happened, but these are some of the things that have come out now when everything is pretty much fallen through. But it's this interesting point because Adidas is now in this point where they give Yeezy and by extension Kanye West a reported $10 million to launch this official deal. 
and Kanye also gets royalties. And he also now has a direct line to Adidas leadership. So a lot of those boxes that were checked with the company that had all of the same distribution opportunities, but in many ways probably wanted to lean more on American culture or figure to have that type of benefit. It was in this type of, in the same way that we, they tried to acquire Reebok and it didn't work out for these reasons. Well, Adidas signing Kanye West likely did even more for them than acquiring Reebok ever did in that particular point. So he was able to check all those boxes. Absolutely. When you think about the structure of this deal, it wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't insisted on keeping ownership of the brand all along, which is what he did, following the example of leaders like Jay-Z, who, you know, he'd been around for his whole career, right? He was all about ownership that must have rubbed off on Kanye. And uh, Adidas agreed to pay Kanye like triple the royalty that Jordan was supposedly getting and have ownership of the shoe which is insane. Like what a wild deal. Like who would do that? But I think the point was, and you see deals like this, sometimes the best deals, Diddy's Diageo deal, which is just a whole other thing we can get into what's going on there. But um, RIP to that you know, deal. Uh, yeah. And perhaps there's unbelievably terrible stuff that we've been hearing there. With that deal and with the Kanye deal, it was the case of a brand that was the number two or the number three in its space, a company that was number two, number three in its space, looking to launch a new brand. And they didn't really have anything to lose, right? Um, and I think, in fact, when Ciroc deal happened with Diageo, Ciroc was like number 50 vodka. You know, Diageo's attitude was sort of like, sure, we'll give you this wild deal and never really going to work out. And if it does, then that's great for us too. And that's basically what happened with Adidas and we'll give you a 15% royalty. We'll give you all this stuff. You can keep ownership of the brand. But I, I don't think that would have been possible if Adidas had been in the position of Nike at the time uh, of being the, the top dog. And, and I guess why not? Nike never did it. Of course, part of it might have been that Nike knew what it was like to work with Kanye. I, I think Adidas and some of the stuff that's coming out now uh, did not heed some of the warning signs uh, on that front. Agreed. If Adidas had Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, LeBron James, Serena Williams, go down the list, it would not have went out that way. But it kind of goes back to Jay-Z and the underdog partnerships, which is something that I know you've written about and talked about before, where if you're working with these companies that are either the number two or number three, but not the top one, A, they can benefit more from the leverage that you give them. And two, you can get better economics in your favor. Yeah, absolutely. And with that mission in mind, Kanye also had a lot more freedom to go and shake things up and to to make the design that he wanted to make. And I remember one of the things he told me when he was designing the 350, you know, and obviously it's not like Kanye sits there, he sketches the thing, he molds the plastic and, and puts it out. He works with a team of folks at Adidas or, you know, previously at Nike, and they work with him to sort of conceptualize and to, to put into, into production his ideas. But of course, Kanye was intimately involved in the design. It wasn't like people were just showing him a few different things and and he was picking one. I think more than anybody, you can really imagine him being in there and being intimately involved. And so one of the things he said was that with the 350, he wanted it to look like a Lamborghini Countach, this kind of like snub nose kind of thing, you know, instead of pointing up at the end like sneakers do. Uh, and that was a huge departure, kind of a wild thing, but it gave the Yeezys, the 350s, you know, this incredible look. And I think, you know, that, that was, I mean, obviously the 350s were this kind of revolutionary low top. He was able to make low top sexy in a way that I guess you could go all the way back to run DMC and, and my Adidas to make low top sexy on a scale that they that they really hadn't been before and to make them something that that really scaled up across the entire culture to be this like desirable fashion item. And, you know, I kind of wonder, I mean, was Kanye also responsible in a way for like leading that push 
toward NBA players wearing low tops. 350s make low tops so cool that it kind of spilled over into like, you know, moment when NBA players are wearing low tops. I still don't believe that they're that they're just as good for your ankles, by the way. I think that's a bunch of BS. But, you know, what do I know? I'm not, I'm not like a bunch of basketball players. <laughs> there was some season in there where Kobe had one of the Mambas that had oh, a low top. Right, yeah. And it still wasn't like as low as like the 350s. But there was a mid there. I forget when it was. My guess is that it may have actually been a little bit before the adidas yeezy relationship but i forget yeah, the exact timing yeah yeah but but it is interesting though because yeah as you put it more autonomy more ownership more success but this is also where the debt starts to increase and Kanye just goes into more and more debt he does this interview where he's honored at the 2015 bet honors and he says that he was in 16 million dollars of debt then and there were other things that he was trying to release and the thing is so we had all these prototypes, which you had described in terms of how he's just thinking about all these designs. So it cost time and money to pay him and all the people that are there. And yeah, there's money that Adidas, that Adidas gives you. But as we know, there are many different ways to go about a sneaker partnership. If you're someone that just takes the check and does a bit of the minimal, then you're not going to go into debt. But you also may not build a billion dollar sneaker empire if you and your fans don't believe that you're putting everything into it. But Kanye putting everything into it, as we know, goes to the nth degree and that brings us to 2016 where he sends out that infamous tweet storm where Kanye says that he's 53 million dollars in debt and he's asking Mark Zuckerberg and all of these other tech billionaires and luminaries for money but this is also when the Adidas Yeezy is clearly having its success people are clearly latching onto these shoes Kanye has shared his desires to make these a mass-produced widely accessible product which, as we talked about earlier, means there'll be more money in his pocket. However, Adidas is being very thoughtful to their credit about the rollout, and they want to make sure that, A, they're not overproducing. B, there was still some risk in the early days, as we talked about. You're not just going to go drop a million units of these things. So Kanye likely is frustrated because not it's it's one thing to just be in debt and have no vision of where your fortune is going to come. But A, he's in this record deal, which, as we know from all the lawsuits that he's had over the past few years, isn't the most favorable in the world. He has the sneaker deal where people are clamoring to buy the shoes, but he can't sell them in the quantities he wants to yet. But he is in so much debt that he's begging publicly for bailouts. So it's just this very interesting moment that's happening right on this Yeah, time. I mean, I think this would probably be a good moment to reflect on a thing that he told me when I interviewed him. One of the times he said, I was, we were standing out there in photo shoot and, and he had arranged all of his sneakers that he'd ever made, like every prototype, every Yeezy shoe in, in sort of concentric circles around him. We were standing in the middle of this like crop circle of shoes. And I'm like, just, you know, give me an idea. Like how many shoes are we looking at here? And he goes, I'm not a numbers guy. I mean, I don't know. I mean, this must be like hundreds of shoes, right? Probably. I'm just, I'm just trying to get them going anything, you know? And he's like, I'm not a numbers guy. If your grandma baked you a cake for your birthday and surprised you with it, would you be wanting to know the exact measurements of everything that went into the ingredients? And I was like, no, but I'm not writing a cover story about my grandma, you know, so, uh, but no, he like, he wouldn't give me numbers. And so like throughout this process of writing that story, I remember he would throw numbers around and, you know, it's like the numbers were right, but sometimes he would confuse, let's say, earnings with revenue or like not necessarily 
the best understanding of debt. And it's like, well, you could have $53 million in debt, hundreds of millions of dollars in assets. Yeah, technically you have this debt, but are you in debt in the sense like anybody who owns a home, are they in debt? I mean, I guess, but they're also, you know, they have all this equity that is almost always worth more than the debt. So, you know, at that point that he was complaining about his debt, was Yeezy and whatever other holdings, his catalog, all this other stuff worth more than $53 million? Absolutely. So you might think about it more as like, if you have that level of assets, if you have hundreds of millions of dollars of assets, $53 million of debt is not that weird. Like I think Jay-Z and Beyonce took out a $50 million mortgage when they bought this $80 million house in LA a few years ago. What, you know, because rates were whatever they were, three or 4% and figure that you can earn more, um, you know, with the money than you're paying on the interest for the loan. So yeah, I mean, is that a lot of debt? Yes. Did he have even more assets? Absolutely. And and I think people seize on this debt thing. They're like, oh, was he 53? You know, it wasn't like if we, we were to have done a net worth estimate on him at the time, we'd say Kanye is worth negative $53 million, <laughs> right? Um, you know, he probably would have been net positive. Like, right. I mean, that said, Kanye has always spent too much money. And like, there were other ways to have built Yeezy that would not have resulted in incurring quite so much debt. And, you know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg should have invested in, in, in Yeezy at that point. I mean, it, it might have been okay, depending on when he got out. So there you have it. It's it's fascinating because the lack of understanding lends itself to each aspect of the story, right? Confusing different things, not realizing, not realizing how much money you actually have. But the overspending is something that we've seen and we've heard about and has found some way to introduce itself in every area of his work. I even think back to the rumors during the Watch the Throne tour with him and Jay-Z and Kanye wanted to have all this crazy shit that they were doing. And Jay-Z was like, hey, no, like, let's keep this somewhat more practical. You know, you do this and I do this and then we could come together for this. And that in many ways being the start of the tension that they had had. So this introduces itself in a few different ways. The other thing, too, is that around this time, Yeezy is smartly using his Yeezy is smartly using his foundation of the success of these sneakers to then try to see how can he use it to promote all the other things that he's working on. So he has these annual fashion shows that he calls Yeezy Season, and he's renting out arenas, he's inviting celebrities, and these are showcases for him to show off the newest designs and have his releases be aligned with this. And this was, in a lot of ways, a bit more unique for sneakers specifically because we just didn't see that in that type of way for sneakers. You saw it in high fashion for different products, but for someone to do this with sneakers was really cool. It was really blending the high fashion worlds with this type of culture, which is something that I do think Kanye deservedly gets credit for. But then he also combines it with the release for his music in 2016, the Yeezy season that he has there, that is lined up with the release for The Life of Pablo, when there's that iconic clip that so many of us have seen with him and Kid Cudi arm in arm and they're singing Father Stretch My Hands at that particular part, especially when the bridge comes in. It's dope. And then he's also using this as a platform to sell other type of non-footwear apparel too, to try to push his t-shirts and other products. 
as you mentioned earlier, those products did not work as well, but it was the platform to give it a try and see what happens. Yeah, for sure. And of course, big time assist here go to uh, Kardashian Jenner clan. You know, what better place to be broadcasting your fashion and your shoes than, you know, like the, the first family of social media, um, all that free advertising, you know, billions of social media followers. You know, that that obviously was, was a huge part of it, in addition to having the Jay-Z's and the Beyonce's of the world in the front row at your Yeezy season. So. It was just a masterclass in influencer marketing. And I think that, you know, that deserves major mention in, in sort of the rise of the Yeezy fortune and empire. And it's this interesting moment, too, because at this point, I think that a lot of Kanye fans, at least traditional Kanye fans, The Life of Pablo is probably the last commercial release that he had that really had true staying power that had memorable hits that lived on and had different moments as well. But even though a lot of the commercial music that he's released since then hasn't necessarily caught on in the same way, the sneakers just continue and continue to take off. And we talked a little bit about this in the Adidas episode, but the quantities start to increase, they continue to sell out. And by the late 2010s, he is releasing several versions of these sneakers and he is netting billions of dollars for Adidas and the Yeezy company himself, which is when you write the piece and do the math and show that, yeah, this is a business that take, needs to be taken seriously because Kanye West is now a billionaire, but he's not the billionaire in the same type of way that a Jay-Z or Diddy or other music moguls might have been for many different things. No, he took this one company and made it what it is. Yeah, I mean, and we could do a whole episode on whether Diddy is a billionaire or not anymore, but, you know, pro probably not. Kanye is definitely not. Uh, but at the time, you know, I, I think people weren't really fully aware of the the sales that Yeezy was doing, you know, back in 2019. And so I remember, you know, getting this call. We had we had estimated Kanye's earnings apparently too low for our, for our uh, celebrity issue. And long story short, they were like, we'll give you the right numbers, but would you be interested in a cover story? And and I'm like, I mean, if you can prove that they're true, and uh, that was why I ended up going out there. The, the numbers checked out. I mean, Yeezy was doing over a billion dollars in revenue, which you know nobody other than Michael Jordan, you know, like Air Jordan was was any anything you know on that level. So, um, in you know, in that cover story, we didn't call him a billionaire. We just said he was a billion dollar brand, meaning like Yeezy doing a billion dollars in revenue, whatever. Billion dollars brand is kind of like a mushy term, but if you're selling a billion dollars for sneakers a year, you can call it a billion dollar brand. It wasn't until a few months after that, that Kanye started complaining that, you know, Forbes hadn't put him in, in its sort of like billionaire list. And, um, and then I remember like in the early days of the pandemic, he was just like blaming us on social media for not calling him a billionaire. And, and so, you know, I reached out and I was sort of like, if you're a billionaire, like prove it, show me the receipts. And we went back and forth and he did. And it was a very hard thing to value because although he owns the brand hundred percent, it got to the point where he couldn't do it without Adidas. He couldn't sort of like go and just reproduce three fifties on his own. Um, so it was a little more complicated than that, but you know, no matter how you sliced it by early 2020, he, he was billionaire thanks to the, the way these things were selling. Right. It was cool to see. Cause I could imagine that there's a number of different people that have probably had issues with Forbes calculations over the years and you've called their bluff and they probably had nothing to say in response. Right. But he actually did and credit to him because I think that just opened up more people to see it. And it is some, in some ways it can be a bit of a shame that people need the vanity statement of, okay, no, it's not, it's not just that you've built a billion dollar business. We need to honor you as a billionaire yourself, but it does change the discussion for certain things. So I think it was good to see that type of validation 
And this is interesting too, because this is when we start to hear more and more of the discussions about the gap side of the business and Yeezy Gap and what that may look like. And especially by 2021, which is I think the first time that we start to hear the announcements for that partnership, the vision is in many ways similar in that Kanye wants to be able to have these shoes to be available. And even before he had announced that he was going to do the partnership with Gap, I remember reading different interviews where he said that he wanted them to be at wildly accessible outlets. I forget if he named Walmart or Costco or places like that, but he talked about wanting to have hoodies available in places like that, that are like a loaf of bread that someone could just go and take and have them be accessible in, in that type of way. But I do think that the Gap story in many ways just felt so full circle, especially because the Kanye fans that have been there for 20 years know the story. You know the song Spaceship, where he's talking about his days working at the Gap and to now be in this type of position. It, there was a romanticized version of this when you're like, oh, this could be an interesting movie someday. And Yeah, I mean, I thought it was very authentic. It was a, a brilliant partnership made so much sense you know i remember like i i actually pre-ordered one of the, the yeezy puffer jackets that because i thought it was going to be sort of like the thriller jacket like you know like a rookie card you know if, if mj had sort of mass produced the thriller jacket and or not mass but like had, you know done this sort of limited drop that basically these were going to be collector's items and man you know i think the problem was the clothes just weren't good the puffer jacket didn't have a zipper that was one thing you know and i remember it was this sort of like hideous shade of like red orange and i put it on and it felt like i was wearing it like a giant life preserver or something they were just hideous i'm sorry like um and and i think that was the main problem you know the 350s were gorgeous shoes clothes that he made at the gap for the most part were not i mean and they were just and they fit weirdly and they didn't feel Right, wearing them. I don't know. It just was off. Maybe I'm not my my fashion sense isn't on the right level or whatever. But I, I just I think they didn't re resonate with consumers. Like if you're really making a loaf of bread type of hoodie, you know, or um, and the hoodies too. They they were like short, like exposing my midriff. I don't know. You know, it's just people want to feel like themselves in clothes and think maybe there's some ways in which you can take risks with sneakers that you can't with clothes. And it just it just wasn't good. And so the deal flopped. The deal flopped also because of the issue we talked about at the beginning, uh, which is the hate speech. And, you know, there's been a lot of reporting on this and and now all this stuff is coming out that that in fact, it wasn't just his public tirades, his anti-Semitic public tirades that started happening about a year, year and a half ago, you know, but there was all this stuff behind the scenes, just like really hateful stuff that Adidas had never really sort of put their foot down about because they didn't want to kill the golden goose. And then of course it boiled over and put them in the really terrible position, but in some ways it shouldn't have been a surprise to them. Right. One thing about the gap thing that I do want to get your thoughts on specifically, because when this deal first got announced, this was June, 2021, this is a 10 year deal. And the projections that Bloomberg had published at the time were very lofty. They projected to have a billion dollars in sales from Yeezy Gap specifically after five years. And mind you, at the time, Gap's global sales were $4.6 billion. So yeah. this is supposed to be 22% of the current sales that Gap was currently doing. And they were expecting that this deal is something that Gap would also be paying royalties to Yeezy. Inside Hook article titled, Bloomberg and Forbes are fighting about Kanye's net worth, which I'm sure you probably remember. So this was the math that they had done. So Bloomberg did 
say that they worked with UBS Group to value the companies, and they had put Yeezy's sneaker deal with Adidas and Yeezy's Gap Venture to be valued at what they said was somewhere between $3.2 to $4.7 billion. But then they also added in $1.7 billion in assets, which they believed he also had from Skims. And then they put Kanye West himself at $6.6 billion. So, and then on the other side, Forbes, I actually don't know, I actually don't think that you had written this specific one at the time, um, just given the timing, but then Forbes had came back and said that Kanye West is not worth $6.6 billion, whatever it is. So it was this interesting thing because I think I remember seeing the Bloomberg numbers and being like, what? And then Kanye was starting to have more of the, see, look, I'm the richest black man in America. But I think it stems to people having different ideas about how these things are calculated. I definitely, not just because I'm talking to you, at least in this particular scenario, lean more to the Forbes number where I was like, okay, this seems a bit lofty. And I get it. Companies, especially when you're looking at founders and startup valuations, you could have pre-revenue billionaires that are out there sitting on companies that are worth X, right? So I I get it, especially in the middle of the pandemic, zero interest rate uh, phenomenons are happening everywhere you look. Regardless of the number, Kanye was worth more than he had ever been worth before. Yeah, and I left Forbes, I guess, in the middle of that sort of dispute. But I remember in, in the beginning of it, when I was there, going back and forth with his people, and, and they were really definitely playing off Bloomberg and Forbes. And they were saying, well, we're going to get Bloomberg this information or you're going to do this or like they knew that we both wanted to have the the right number published sooner each of us wanted to be the first with the story and so you know with, with whatever the update was and so they were trying to like play us off against each other and to to get a higher number yeah i mean i think that's part of the thing about net worth and, and i do think that the numbers at forbes are the gold standard and, and bloomberg's are great too whoever you're doing a net worth by the way probably you shouldn't believe any place that's not one of those two places there's all kinds of garbage floating around the internet by dudes sitting in their basement just like barfing up numbers so i can tell you as somebody who has made countless put together countless billionaire valuations some of them take months to to put together. I mean, longer than a cover story, the amount of reporting that goes into that one number. So especially when you have private companies and deals that are really unlike any other deal out there, it's really a lot of it in the eye of the beholder. It, it is very complicated. Like, you know, how do you value a brand that somebody like Kanye owns 100% of, but that he can't execute without a distributor, without a partner like Adidas. So you have to discount it to some extent. And, and the extent to which you discount it, usually you would look at, at comps, but there aren't really any comps. So th- th- there, there are a lot of different ways to look at it. But but the point is, just because he owns 100% doesn't mean that he, he has 100% of whatever the thing is worth. Right. And I guess for the people listening, celebritynetworth.com is probably not the best place to get some of these numbers. Just, yeah, just and putting I, you that know, out there. I think a lot of times their numbers are right because they take whatever Bloomberg or Forbes put out. And it's, you know, there are a bunch of sites like that. And they take whatever number Forbes or Bloomberg puts out um, and they just change it slightly so that they don't get in trouble. I remember back in the day at Forbes, you know, we, we would always like when we would find some random site that usually outranked us in search somehow, basically parroting our numbers, you know, our legal team would reach out and be like, you can't just do that. And then they would change it by, you know, 5% one way or the other. So it, it's not really a thing that you can sort of enforce like copyright type of stuff on. Uh, or plagiarism. So, uh, you know, who knows? I mean, maybe maybe there are some folks who, who are really getting to the bottom of it somewhere. But I mean, I think for the most part, those sites tend to just copy Forbes and Bloomberg. And then, you know, for the other stuff, just kind of make it up. Agreed. And then at this point, this was really 
the last hurrah in a lot of ways for the brand and these companies because the next year 2022 everything goes up in flames we see kanye wearing the white lives matter t-shirt we see kanye saying horrible shit in all of these different interviews that he's done more starts to come out from different things that he said whether it is how he used pornography and showing that to people to say here you need to design this shoe to make it look like this all of these vile things and that doesn't even get to the anti-semitism yeah and you know you can talk about does kanye hate the jews does kanye really hate you know whoever he's uh you know spewing hate speech about i mean i think probably not but it doesn't matter. You know, hate speech is hate speech. And the fact is that there have been there's been a huge increase in, in hate crimes, and particularly of the anti-Semitic variety. But, you know, hate crimes in general have been, have been trending upward like over the past year. I think, you know, it's a terrible situation. And, you know, whether or not you believe something in your heart, if you're saying it and, you know, you're in some ways contributing to a very troubling trend, it's just unacceptable. And that's and that's, I think, the deal with Kanye. And, you know, he had so many chances and he just wouldn't stop. And, and I think I think with Kanye, what it comes down to is he doesn't like being told no and so whatever you're telling him you can't do it's like you can't be a rapper you can't be a shoe designer you can't be a clothing designer you can't do hate speech it's it's like it doesn't matter to me it's just like the fact that you're telling him no whatever it is just makes him want to do it more and you know eventually he crossed the line with adidas which as we talked about a couple episodes ago has some sort of like let's say not the best history uh, with anti-semitism so he should have known that of, of all the places you're going to push that that's not the place to push and like, also just don't spew hate speech. Just, it's like never, a good, it's never a good idea for your business. Uh, obviously it's, it's bad, bad thing for the world. It just reached a point where I think Adidas couldn't hold it, couldn't contain it anymore. And the liability was too great. And they, and they were willing to take this huge hit to sever ties with him uh, in the process, vaporizing 10 figures of his net worth in the process. Now we're in this position where Kanye is trying to push these shoes independently. He's trying to sell them on his own. And this is interesting because I feel like we've often heard the discourse over the years of people that have said things, especially the diehard Kanye fans that are still supporting everything to this day, that'll say, you know what, whatever, we could release it on ourselves. You release the STEM player by ourselves. You don't need all these big companies to do this stuff. And the thing is, that's the type of thing that sounds good to say on social media. It could get a lot of retweets, a lot of follows and stuff like that. But for the people that are trying to do things at the scale of a Kanye or any of his peers or contemporaries, there's a reason that most of them aren't just doing it themselves. And there's a reason that most of them have partnered with the biggest companies in the world, whether it's in the music industry, the biggest fashion companies in the world, like LVMH, like many of his former peers or um, friends as well, whether it's Beyonce, Jay-Z and others like that, or any other aspects, because they have distribution and they have infrastructure. And even though you, your big name with your tens of millions of social media followers and your ability to have people fill out stadiums to come see you, it doesn't translate in the same way because these people have the relationships and the option to be able to put these things out. And that extends itself to fashion the same way that extends itself to music. And we're starting to hear some of these things too with more recent things where he's in many ways trying to work a similar type of playbook with this music release with Ty Dolla Sign. He wants to release it independently and they're trying to find a distributor to do it with. And I get it. Again, the ownership route sounds great and I can think it can be viable for a lot of people in a lot of different areas, but not for the type of business that Kanye wants to build and create. Yeah, it is really hard to be independent with something at that scale, right? I mean, if, if you're like, 
hand making Yeezys, you know, in your house and you're going out, um, you know, and, and bringing them to the park to sell them. Like, yes, you can do that independently uh, and you could go a little higher than that. Right. But um, but if you're really intending to do billions of dollars in revenue, I mean, the, the amount of shoes that you have to sell, the amount of shipping and, and putting things together, it just it doesn't it just doesn't work, you know, independently. I don't know how he would do that without some incredible amount of he, he needs a partner like he just can't like he, he's not a factory like he needs to to figure that out somehow. So I do wonder if there's some deal to be done where he finds a distributor and everything is done overseas and, and maybe in markets that are not so concerned with anti-Semitism, hate speech, et cetera, you know, could he find a partner that, that would sort of like help him get to the scale that he wanted to maybe, you know, but again, like then who, like who are you selling to exactly? Is it, is it really going to be the same level of, you know, sort of financial viability? Um, you know, I, I just, I just don't think it's possible to, to do this um, at scale. Uh, interestingly, though, if you were thinking that maybe he would go back to the scale of something like the bathing ape shoe he did, or even the the first Nike Yeezys, maybe that's something that he could pull off on his own, you know, with with some overseas partner. I, I don't think he's ever going to approach the, the scale that he had with Adidas on his own. I don't think so either. And there's still success to be had for sure, but it's just not quite at the same level. And that's where we are today the rise, the fall, and the continued story of Yeezy. Part of me does still hope that it becomes a movie in some type of way in the same way that we saw Air, but it's not a movie that has to have a happy ending. I mean, we've seen plenty of rise and falls of tragic figures. In some ways, the story of this kind of makes me think of, did you see Tar with Kate Blanchett? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Yeah. Okay, it it's funny you were thinking about this too. Yeah, where, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's like, okay, well, look how things ended up for the ending of tar right that could be the next step for, for kanye so we won't spoil it but no that was exactly what i was thinking uh, a couple <laughs> minutes ago yeah that's that's wild so yeah so so there you have it with that anything else to add before we wrap things up i think we've just about covered it this was good i mean sad tales again still frustrated both in the research and even justin repeated these things like oh this could have been different but i am glad we got to tell the story so thank you yeah thank you for having me as always if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend, send it to one or two people you think would really get value out of listening to this episode. And while you're at it, if you could rate and review the show, that would be great. Rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, rate the podcast on Spotify, rate the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps make sure that the word gets out about Trapital and what we're building here. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you next time.